Good morning and welcome to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. I'm your editor, Bryce. I'm one of your hosts, Abby. And I'm your other host, Erica. Today, we're going to be telling you part two of the Ted Bundy story, which will focus on his victims. So grab a cup of coffee or a glass of wine, whatever floats your boat, and let's get into it. guys welcome back to our episode so if you listen to the end of our last one you know that i had last been telling you about ted bundy's girlfriend that he had at the same time he was dating diane edwards liz started to suspect that ted was maybe not who she thought he was and that he was possibly the guy that the police were looking for she really started to suspect things in 1974 after there were news reports coming out about the murder and rape of two women in the area. Witnesses had mentioned the name Ted, and that was kind of what was floating around, as well as the vehicle that had been driven was a Volkswagen. Liz was kind of suspicious, but she kind of had that thought in her head that, you know, this person that I know cannot be the one committing these crimes. They're not capable of it. She did ask him about some of his strange behaviors because she found a meat cleaver on his desk, a surgical glove in his coat pocket, and he had driven hundreds of miles to Colorado one night to de-stress from work. And so she felt like it was just a little out there and strange behavior, but he was able to talk his way out of it with, you know, his charm that he used on everyone. Eventually, Liz decided to take it into her own hands and go a step further and report him to the police and tell them that he was the killer. But the police were like, it's not Ted. He's not the killer. And she went home and stayed with him and didn't tell him anything about the fact that she had gone to the police about him to accuse him of murder. In Liz's book, she talks a lot about the relationship that the two had. And one of the things that she mentions is that looking back, she sees that Ted actually tried to murder her at one point in time. Liz continued her relationship with Ted even when he was in jail. And she said that he kept writing her love letters and calling and she, he was always able to just suck her back in. She said, quote, Ted's letters made me feel loved, end quote. In 1975, Liz was really convinced that Ted was probably the killer that everyone was looking for. And so she went to the police again with, with the accusation against Ted. And this information actually helped the police charge Ted. In Liz's book, she starts to talk about the time that she found out that Ted tried to kill her. So he was in prison in Florida and around 2 a.m. he called Liz to talk to her and he confessed that he had been trying to stay away from her when he, quote, felt the power of his sickness building in him, end quote, but he couldn't resist his impulse. And he tells her that he tried to kill her once claiming that he had closed a fireplace damper so the smoke couldn't go up the chimney and then put a towel in the door so the smoke would stay in the apartment. And Liz said that she remembers that night. She said, my eyes were running and I was coughing. I jumped out of bed and threw open the nearest window and stuck my head out. After I'd recovered some, I opened all the windows and the doors and broke up the fire the best I could. I had gotten on Ted the next day for not coming back with the fan, end quote. He just lit a fire in the fireplace and that's what was smoking it up and like making it hard for her to breathe or did he actually set something on fire i think it was just the fireplace so i'm going to go into quite a few of his victims now the first known victim of ted bundy was 18 year old karen sparks and this was in january of 1974 
Karen was a University of Washington student and she was attacked in her sleep on January 4th, 1974. This one's a little rough and sometimes researching all of his victims was hard, but he snuck into her basement bedroom and broke a metal rod off of her bed frame and beat her with it. And then and then he sodomized her with that metal rod. Fortunately, she was able to survive after spending 10 days in a coma and she suffered permanent brain damage from the attack. So she had no memory of it at all, which I think is really fortunate that you didn't have a memory of it, I guess. I don't know that it's something you'd want to remember. Yeah, I wonder how much of that was from the brain damage and how much of it was from her brain, like knowing that it needs to block out that kind of memory. The next known victim of Ted was in February of 1974, and it was Linda Ann Healy. She was 21 years old and also a student at the University of Washington. She gave weather and ski reports at a local radio station. And when she went missing, everyone thought it was really strange because it was unlike her. When police started to investigate, they found blood on her bed sheets and pillow, but there wasn't enough to indicate whether or not she was still alive based on how much blood was there. Was it enough to assume that she was attacked? Yes. And the other things that were with it were kind of weird. So there was a nightgown hanging in her closet with a ring of dried blood around the neck. But some of her clothes and then her pillowcase and her backpack were missing. So it seemed as if whoever had attacked her had crept into her room in the middle of the night, which was also in the basement, just like Karen's was. And then he would have knocked her unconscious, removed her pajamas, and then dressed her in fresh clothing. Because what she left in was not what she went to bed in. Three days after the abduction, 911 received a phone call from an unknown male, and he said, quote, listen, and listen carefully. The person who attacked that girl on the 8th of last month and the person who took Linda Healy away are one and the same. He was outside both houses. He was seen, end quote. But they could never figure out who it was. That really makes me wonder, because I know, I mean, Ted probably wasn't the one who made that call. So that really makes me wonder who it was and why they wouldn't have identified him. I I don't know. I I mean, it could have been Ted trying to taunt the police. It doesn't seem to fit what he did or how he was as a killer. But, I mean, killers can switch up their MOs if they want. Yeah, my only current knowledge of how he was during the murders kind of comes from um, the, the movie of it. I didn't do it. Like, my research wasn't on that part. So... I'm like trying to base it off what I know about him and I'm not sure if like the whole taunting thing really fits. Personally to me it doesn't sound like him just because he's always like kind of blocking himself away from his crimes. So it doesn't seem like he'd be the type of person to taunt the police. It's not something I would really see out of him but I also don't know who else would have just called in. I wonder if it was someone who was in his, like, his friend or family who, like, knew that something was off with him, like you said earlier, his girlfriend was, but didn't want to just full-blown say it. The way that it's worded sounds like a power play, the way that he's saying, like, those people are one and the same. The thing about serial killers is typically it's done because of a desire for power, and the way that that's worded sounds like a power move to try to say, like, these are the responsibilities of one person. Hint, hint, wink, wink. So it sounds like it's coming from the person doing it, but it doesn't sound like it fits Ted. So that's where the confusion is for me. Either way, that call was never able to be traced and it didn't really lead to anything. But police did take Linda's disappearance as the first sign that something was happening and they most likely had a serial killer on their hands. 
14 months after her disappearance, her skull and jaw bones were found on Taylor Mountain, which was about an hour drive from where she lived. The next known victim is Donna Gail Manson, and she was murdered in March of 1974. She was a 19-year-old student at Evergreen State College. She disappeared on her way to a campus concert, and her body was never found. This is one that Ted Bundy admitted and confessed to, and he told Detective Robert Keppel, quote, of all the things I did to Liz, this is probably the one she is least likely to forgive me for. Poor Liz, end quote. Why? Because he confessed that he burned Donna's skull in Liz's fireplace. I mean, personally, I'd have a hard time forgiving him for everything he did. Not just like, this is the final straw. But sure, Ted. I think we know he didn't necessarily think clearly. But yeah, that was what he said. The mystery has been solved. Here at Crime Over Coffee, our go-to caffeinated beverage for every episode is Fire Department Coffee. And you can get some as well and save 15% with our exclusive coupon code CRIMEPOD15. Owned and operated by firefighters and veterans, 10% of all their proceeds go directly to helping sick and injured first responders. And with an incredible range of flavors and caffeine strength, it's a company that all of us can easily support. So please go to firedeptcoffee.com and use our coupon code CRIMEPOD15 to support us, support them, help first responders, and get some incredibly tasty coffee along the way. The next known victim of Ted was Susan Elaine Raincourt in April of 1974. She was an 18-year-old student at Central Washington State College, and on April 17th, around 8 p.m., she was seen putting a load of laundry in the washing machine and then headed to her regular dorm advisory meeting. She had planned to go to a German film with a friend afterwards, but she was never seen after the meeting. After she disappeared, there was a major search, and there were no results, unfortunately. It was later that students on campus came forward and said that they actually did remember things from the night that she disappeared, but this was only after Ted had admitted to the crime. And they all said that they had been approached by a man named Ted who had his arm in a sling. So he wasn't using an alias, which I still think is super interesting. I wonder if it's because he was just always so confident in himself. That's probably a good thought process behind that. I don't, I don't know. I think that if I was trying to not be found out, I'd probably come up with an alias. I don't know. Our next victim was in May of 1974. Her name was Roberta Kathleen Parks. She was the first known victim of Ted in Oregon. She was also a student at Oregon State University, and she was supposed to be meeting her friends at a coffee shop, but she never ended up making it there. They eventually ended up finding her skull at Taylor Mountain in Washington, where he had hid other remains. In June of 1974, Ted murdered two different people. The first was Brenda Carol Ball, and witnesses at last saw 22-year-old Brenda around 2 a.m. outside the Flame Tavern, which is in Seattle. She was talking to a man in a sling, and he was asking for some sort of help. The next victim, which was on June 11th, was Georgianne Hawkins. She was also attending the University of Washington, and the witnesses had remembered a man on crutches struggling with a briefcase right where she vanished from. So something I'm noticing a lot with these stories, though, is that he has like he always kind of fakes some impalement, I think, to get the sympathy of these girls. Yeah, I would say that that was his main way of trying to get attention and get somebody to feel bad for him and to get them vulnerable. I mean, for lack of a better way of saying it, it's it's a good way, because like I know in a situation, if you see someone who is like has a broken leg or is handicapped and they're struggling with something, if like you would help them 
That's just kind of what a normal person would do. And unfortunately, he took it and twisted it so that he was manipulating these girls. And ultimately, it led to their attacks and murders. Yeah, you really have to be careful with people. And it's really sad how careful you have to be because there are some people out there that really do need help. And then there's some people out there that are, you know, Ted Bundy and they don't need the help, but they are trying to use it as a ploy. And it's really unfortunate that you kind of have to screen for that nowadays or even back then. Yeah, I think a good way to counteract it is to like, you know, maybe from a safe distance or if you're in your car, don't put your window down all the way. Ask if they need help and call authorities or call someone to go help them. I think it's really easy to sit here and think that through and like think that that's overall the best, objectively the best and safest thing to do. But then if you really think about yourself in different situations, especially if it seems like almost an emergency level, like this person needs help now, do I really want to seem like a jerk to sit here and be like, oh, maybe I'll call for help, but they need help right now or, or whatever the different situations might be. There's a line you have to figure out if you're going to cross. Do I take some sort of risk to help them now because they need help now or, or whatever? whatever it could be. So it's, it could be really tricky. And that's probably what gets some people into trouble. Hard to know. It's also interesting to try to tie that into like the bystander effect that we've talked about before, because that's a whole other element that we've not, we didn't mention in the little mini we did on it is what if by you helping this person who's in trouble, quote unquote, you're putting yourself in danger or at risk. Correct. And like we've discussed, you know, the bystander effect doesn't always, you don't always end up on the good end of the deal. These kind of situations, there's no black or white answer or clear answer. It just, there's a lot of chance and luck and right and wrong in it. And I just don't know what the right answer is for any of it, really. I don't know if there is a right answer. The next victim of Ted's was in July of 1974. And it was Janice Ann O and Denise Marie Nasland. They were both kidnapped on the same day from Lake Sammamish State Park in Issaquah, which is about 20 minutes from Seattle. He abducted them in broad daylight, and witnesses later came forward and said that there was a man with his left arm in a sling that had approached them and introduced himself as Ted, and he was asking for help to rig his sailboat to his car. See, that's one of the scenarios where I think I'd be like, sorry, I can't. Yeah, I don't know that that's something that I would help with unless it was like a super populated parking lot that I was in maybe or like if I had somebody with me I don't know I think it just really depends on the situation well and you know the thing that's to like for us to remember is that he was such a charming guy too and like supposedly everyone thought he was really good looking and seemed really nice and easygoing I bet that was a big factor if some creepy guy missing a bunch of teeth and not wearing the nicest clothes comes up and asks you to do something with his car, maybe you're not as keen to it. I could see that. I mean, a lot of people have these like mindsets of what to feel comfortable around. I think a lot people give up, give off vibes, you know, and if he truly was a psychopath, like we've kind of talked about, he probably didn't give off too much of a creepy vibe. Yeah. One woman had agreed to it. And she started to go towards, like, with him towards his car. And then she was like, you know what? You're driving a Volkswagen Beetle? Um, and there's no sailboat. And she went to leave. And he said, quote, oh, I forgot to tell you. It's at my folks' house. Just to jump up the hill. End quote. 
And he used a slight British accent. So that's my best attempt at it, guys. I love Erica's British accents. So I'm very happy this happened. And I'm glad she could share it with you guys. (laughs) And Bryce is like rolling his eyes. (laughs) Yep. That's the support I get in this family. After he said that, she ran away. She was like, no, I'm not getting involved. But she said that a little while later, she saw another woman with him and they were conversing. The woman that was able to escape from Ted Bundy was able to give the police a description of the man. She was able to tell them that he had sandy blonde hair. He was about five foot ten and 160 pounds, and he drove a brown Volkswagen Bug. So they released a sketch of the suspect. At this time, Ted Bundy was actually working for the Seattle Suicide Hotline, and the Seattle Police Department had nominated him to be the director of the Seattle Crime Prevention Advisory Committee. I just think it's absolutely insane. Insane, yeah. And his colleague, Ann Rule, talked to the police and said, look at his sketch. This looks just like Ted Bundy. Like, it's a very similar resemblance. And the authorities were like, Ted Bundy drives a Volkswagen Bug. Looks a lot like him. Not him. And moved on. Any idea why? Nope. I feel like that's the opposite of what you usually encounter, where people have very, very little evidence and police try to force evidence to fit a potential suspect. So that's interesting. And I wonder if it had anything to do with his, like how he was perceived in the community or like everybody thought he was some nice, charming guy. So they were just like, no, it couldn't be. I'm really curious why they completely ignored pretty solid evidence. I'm just assuming it probably had something to do with the fact that he had the ties to the police department and things. And they were just like, we're not going to take someone of our own down. After this, Ted decided to take a short little break, and he started school at the University of Utah as a law student. So from July of 1974 until October, there were no known killings for him. In October of 1974, he attacked 16-year-old cheerleader Nancy Wilcox when she went out to buy a pack of gum, and she just vanished into thin air. And later, witnesses came forward and said that they'd seen her riding in a Volkswagen bug. I didn't find whether or not her body had ever was ever found, but this is another one that Ted had supposedly admitted to. So that was on October 2nd. Then on October 11th, Ted approached a woman named Rhonda Stapley. She was a first-year pharmacy student waiting for a bus to take her back to the University of Utah, and he offered to give her a ride in his bug. She ended up accepting this ride, and he took her to the big Cottonwood Canyon, where he repeatedly strangled and raped her. And she was able to get away because Ted turned his back on her for a minute and she just ran for her life and jumped into a nearby river and then just swam away. And she didn't contact authorities right away. She actually hid her story for 40 years because she thought that she was going to be like ridiculed. And it wasn't until 2011 where she finally came out and told her story and told authorities about what had happened to her. It is also crazy and insane or whatever word you want to use to me that a lot of his victims do escape and get away, yet it took quite a bit of time to actually like close in on him. And something too I've noticed just like listening to you talk about these victims is that all the ones we know about or that he confessed to or whatever, we're all within really just like a small span of time, just a few years Which I assume is why they've always suspected him of committing more crimes. Yes, I think that they were all pretty close together. And I don't know why he didn't like ever really take a break other than like a couple months. But there were so many crimes in there. And because the police weren't looking at him, he was just, I mean, more and more crimes just continued to happen. 
A week later, so we're still in October of 1974, 17-year-old Melissa Smith vanished. She was the daughter of the police chief, and she had met a friend at a pizza parlor and had planned to walk home, get some clothes, and then go over to her friend's house for a summer party. Pretty typical night, but she never ended up making it home to even get the clothes. Her body was found nine days later in Summit Park in the mountains. And then on October 31st, 1974, Ted struck again. He attacked 17-year-old Laura Aim. She was leaving a cafe, and on the way home, something happened. It's not really known. It took a few days for her family to even notice that she was missing, and her body was found about a month later, frozen in the mountains. November 8th, 1974, Ted decided to kind of step it up a notch, so he's no longer pretending to be injured. He's now pretending to be a police officer, which you're supposed to trust. See, this makes me think he could have been the one who made that phone call and taunting the police. Yeah, when he he starts to get a little more risky. I don't know. I, I don't, I really just don't know what his thought process or his plan or any of it was. He approached Carol DeRanch, dressed as a police officer, at the Fashion Place Mall in Utah. He told the 18-year-old Carol DeRanch that her car had been broken into and he needed help her by taking her to the police station. So she's like, all right, I'll come help you. And she goes out to his car and she gets in the car to help and notices that they're not driving towards the police station. And I can only imagine the fear in her, like her heart just drop, you know, when you realize this probably is not a situation I should be in. Not a real police officer. Yes. She said that his friendly demeanor shifted really quick to just cold distance. And she asked him what he was doing. He just didn't answer. Even though he had handcuffed her together and threatened her with a gun, she eventually was able to break out of the car and run for her life. And there was a couple driving nearby and they found her. They saw her running and they picked her up and they took her... They took her to the police station to get help. And she was looking through the books of the mugshots and she couldn't find this guy's face anywhere. And just a few hours later, instead of taking a break, Ted approached 17-year-old Debbie Kent after she had just performed in a high school play in Utah. And he kidnapped her and then ended up murdering her. Ted left a clue behind in the parking lot, which was a key that matched the handcuffs that Carol had escaped with earlier that day. So they were able to connect the two cases together. And I think that really helped seal the entire arrest later on. After the attempted murder of Carol and Debbie Kent, Ted took a few months off. So between October of 1974 and January of 1975, he took another couple months off. But this time he was in Colorado. He kidnapped 23-year-old Karen Campbell in Aspen. She was a registered nurse in, that was in town to ski and had been attending a medical convention. On January 12th, she left her fiance and his children in the hotel lobby so that she could go grab a magazine from their room, but she vanished and she was never seen again. The next known victim is in March of 1975, and it was 26-year-old Julie Cunningham. She was a Colorado ski instructor who went to meet her roommate at a local bar, and Ted approached her, and he was on crutches again and asked her for help, and when she went to help him, he kidnapped her. The next was in April of 1975, and this is Denise Lynn Oliverson, and she had had a fight with her husband in Colorado, and so 24-year-old Denise got on her bike and decided that she was going to go back to her parents' house for the night because she just needed some time in space. She unfortunately never made it to her parents' place, and her bicycle was later found under a viaduct, 
and this is another confirmed killing of Ted. The next victim that we know of for Ted Bundy was on May 6th, 1975. And this one is a hard one. It was 12-year-old Lynette Culver, and he abducted her in Idaho. He had spotted her earlier that day playing on the field of Almeida Junior High. He raped her, murdered her in a hotel bathtub, and threw her body into a river, but she has never been found. The next known victim is Susan Curtis. In June of 1975, 15-year-old Susan Curtis was attending a Mormon youth conference. She actually attended the same school as Debbie Kent did. She was actually the last person that Ted confessed to killing. This is the one where he was on his way to his execution, and he asked for a tape recorder so that he could admit to this murder. And her body has not been found to this day. Thanks for listening to part two on the series covering Ted Bundy. Tune in next week for part three that will cover the arrests, escapes, and trials of Ted Bundy. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of Crime Over Coffee. You can find us on Instagram at Crime Over Coffee or on Facebook at Crime Over Coffee Podcast, where all of our photo and video content for each episode can be found. You can also email us your thoughts and case suggestions at crimeovercoffeepod at outlook.com. Also, all of our sources can be found in the show notes of each episode. If you would like, you can support us by going to anchor.fm slash crimeovercoffee. Donations are greatly appreciated and assist in making the podcast possible. Other ways to support us include recommending us to friends and family, giving us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts, and subscribing to us on your favorite podcast listening medium. So again, thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.